0: Coming up on Blue 58, John Dorsey is done in Kansas City and his departure could have a ripple effect in Green Bay. We take our first crack at advanced stats and reminisce about Don Hudson, the Packers' first all-time great offensive weapon. Then we take a few minutes to talk about some great football books to page through before we get to training camp. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the official podcast of the ThePowerSweep.com. I'm John Meerdink, your host. My normal co-host, Gary Zilovey, is off this week. He is consulting with some other NFL owners. We'll look forward to seeing him and hearing him again on the podcast soon. Before we dive in today, I have to conduct a little bit of business here on the air as it pertains to Blue 58. We have parted ways with WTMJ Mobile, but you will still be able to get the episodes of Blue 58 that you know and love through your Apple Podcasts app and through thepowersweep.com. Nothing should change on your end. This is purely just a back-end business sort of thing, but I did want to make you aware of it, just in case when the podcast feed refreshes, you get a whole bunch of episodes at once, and you're wondering why. That's why it's because of some changes on the back end. There's nothing bad happening with the power sweep or Blue58, just some, some business dealings going on and we're going in a little bit of a different direction. So if you get a bunch of episodes downloading at once, that's why we just had to refresh the feed and uh, make a couple changes there on the back end. But other than that, everything's going to be the same. So let's dive right in with some headlines. Starting first in Kansas City, where John Dorsey has been fired as general manager He joined the Chiefs in 2013 after climbing the ranks in Green Bay, out after really a a couple unusual weeks for the Kansas City Chiefs. They abruptly cut wide receiver Jeremy Macklin June 13th after he signed a five-year, $55 million contract just two years ago. Then earlier on Friday, the day that Dorsey was fired, uh, the Chiefs announced a contract extension for Andy Reid. So you wonder if there's a little bit of personnel stuff going into Reid's new responsibilities and exactly why uh, Dorsey was let go. There were some some things coming out from behind the scenes about Dorsey maybe not being the easiest sort of person to work with. Not that he's a bad guy or anything, but just that his, his management style was not always what other people were looking for or hoping for from their general manager. But suffice it to say, Dorsey out in Kansas City for now, and that leads people to speculate that he may be headed back to Green Bay sooner or later. Why is that exactly? Well, a couple of reasons. First, as we mentioned earlier, Dorsey came up in the more serious portion of his career, uh, the rising part of his career as a member of the Green Bay Packers front office, uh, contemporary of Reggie McKenzie and John Schneider. Dorsey, one of the first to, to get the real big crack at becoming a general manager in his own right, not uh, not the first. Schneider uh, had the first opportunity, but. Uh, Dorsey making the leap, as those other gentlemen did as well. Now, there has been some speculation as well that he could be somewhere in the line of succession for the Packers' general manager job if and when Ted Thompson calls it quits. He obviously has to Green Bay in his own career, but uh, he has family ties to that area as well, considers himself a Wisconsin guy because of the amount of time that he spent in Green Bay for his career, And as former Packers beat writer Bob McGinn pointed out in January, he recently bought a house in Door County and was well regarded while he was a member of the Packers. Now on the flip side, Ted Thompson has given no indication that he wants to retire, and I think at this point he has earned the right to go out on his own terms, whatever those may be. Ted Thompson, a bit of an unusual guy in some ways, doesn't really have any family to speak of. Football is pretty much it for him, and you could picture him doing it for a long, long time to come in a variety of capacities. His contract is up after the 2018 draft, next spring's draft, but again, there's been no indication that he wants to retire, and you have to think that if the Packers approached him, with a contract extension, he would at least seriously consider it unless there's something that we just don't know about. Admittedly, there's a lot that we don't know about Ted Thompson because he's a pretty private guy. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about his personal interests or life outside of football, which is fine. All that to say, though, we don't know exactly what's going on in Ted Thompson's mind and when his eventual retirement date could be coming. There's also the matter of the young talent within the Packers front office already. We know a lot about Elliot Wolf and Brian Gutekunst because they've both been considered for general manager jobs this offseason already. Could they be in line for the top job in Green Bay? You get mixed reports on that sometimes. You don't really know where things shake out. You'd have to think they're somewhere in the Packers' plans for the future, but you don't know exactly where they fit. I personally think they would probably consider Wolf or Gutekunst before they brought Dorsey back into the building, but that's just me. I don't have a lot of data to support that. That's just what I think. If anything, I think this is an interesting storyline to follow over the next year uh, to see where Dorsey ends up and to see what the Packers decide to do, if anything. Moving on, last week we teased the idea of putting together some of our own quote-unquote advanced stats. Well, here is our first, something that we're calling the Ballhawk Index. So what is it and how does it work? Well, thankfully, we don't have to put together that answer all on our own because technically this stat isn't original to us. This is something that Bob McGinn, the aforementioned Packers beat writer, has done unofficially uh, over the years, at least as far back as 2013, possibly earlier. It's not a super complex uh, stat to understand or to calculate, as you'll see here in a second. Basically, what the ball hawk stat does is track how well defensive players are at making things happen around the ball. In McGinn's calculations, the NFL's best ball hawks are the people who lead the league or lead their teams in the combined totals of interceptions, passes defensed, sacks, and forced fumbles. Basically, get to the ball and make something happen when you get there. So basically, a ball hawk equals interceptions plus passes defensed plus sacks plus forced fumbles. What does this mean for the Packers? Unfortunately, it means bad things, at least as far as the 2016 Packers are concerned. The Packers didn't have a lot of people making consistent plays at or around the ball last year. Haha Clinton Dix was the only player from the Packers to rank in the top 30 league wide in the Ball Hawk Index, which is what we're calling this stat. He came in 29th. There were six different teams that had multiple people ahead of the Packers' highest player, which was again, Haha Clinton Dix. The New York Giants, by the way, very impressive. Three players ranking in the top 10 of the ball hawk Index. Long story short, the Packers did not have many people getting to the balls and making plays last year. And that is something that they're obviously hoping to change um, in this next season coming up. Will it work? I don't know. We'll see. Third headline, Don Hudson. We are talking about the former Packers wide receiver. And I say former, I mean way distant NFL history here. Uh, Gil Brandt of NFL.com, also the Gil Brandt who is a former uh, Cowboys front office executive, he has been putting together a bunch of lists of the best players at each position. His wide receiver list included Don Hudson as the number two wide receiver of all time. A lot of people got mad online more or less because they'd never heard of Don Hudson. You are a smart listener, so you have, of course, heard of Don Hudson, but you may not have fully realized how good he was or how influential of a player he actually was. Well, allow me to tell you. Over his 11 year NFL career, Hudson led the league in receiving touchdowns nine different times, receptions eight different times, and receiving yards seven different times. He also led the league in scoring for five consecutive seasons. Only one person since Hudson retired has been able to do it more than three times. That's nearly 70 years, actually more now, more than 70 years since Hudson retired, and nobody has put together a string of dominance exactly like that. To really appreciate how good Hudson was, though, stuff that, that doesn't show up in the box score, and that's where some of these older football books come into play. I like to pick these up at uh, thrift stores and uh, antique stores, basically just look for, looking for things that I call source documents. They're not really source documents, but they're written by people who saw these players actually play at the time when they were at their very best. They don't just have to try to parse through box scores or old press clippings or things like that. These are people who are able to put a little bit of context to those things. This book that I'm about to quote from is called Pro Football's Hall of Fame. It was published in 1963 by a man named Arthur Daly. It has a great story about Hudson. Setting the scene here, the Packers were about to set off with a team called the Cleveland Rams, who are now the Los Angeles Rams. They moved to uh, Los Angeles first, then to St. Louis, now back to Los Angeles, all starting in Cleveland first. The Packers were about to play the Rams, and Cleveland's head coach Dutch Clark, took the unusual strategy of using all of his normal defensive tactics to try to slow Hudson down, but also just putting his fastest defender, a man named Dante Magnani, on Hudson and just telling him, follow him wherever he goes and try to keep up. Hudson didn't care. And one play really shows um, exactly how great of a player that Hudson was. Quoting now from the book, suddenly, Hudson shifted into high gear. Magnani almost blew a fuse in an effort to stay with him, but stay with him he did. Down that imaginary diagonal line sped Hudson until he reached the 10-yard line. Then Don gave it the jet propulsion. In some inexplicable fashion, Magnani also gave a superhuman burst and stayed with him. At the same breakneck speed, Hudson ran right at the goalpost and hooked the upright with his left arm. His feet left the ground and his momentum spun him around the post. Just as he wheeled in the opposite direction to face the field, he reached out his right arm and caught the touchdown pass that Cecil Isbell had floated to him. That was Don Hudson for you. That's an incredible story that you just don't get by looking at the box scores. If somebody pulled a play that was similar to that, and really there is nothing similar to that in today's game, because the goalposts aren't in the end zone anymore. But imagine if somebody did a play like that today. People would lose their minds. This Beckham Jr. catch with a doubled degree of difficulty and no sticky gloves to make that catch as well. Hudson was an incredible player, an incredible athlete, and you really should read the entire story we've got up about him on thepowersweep.com. Before we shift into our main topic, I want to take a second to remind you about the shirts we have available at Spreadshirt.com. We've included now a handy link to a page uh, on our homepage at ThePowerSweep.com where you can find a variety of ways to support The Power Sweep. One of those ways is buying some shirts via Spreadshirt.com. We've got one pretty simple design up there right now, but more are on the way. We'll actually be enlisting your help in a contest in the not-too-distant future to try to come up with some new designs for some T-shirts. But if you want to support the Power Sweep and look pretty good while you're doing it, check that out. Uh, buy one of these shirts uh, and support your favorite Packers website while looking pretty good, like I said, at the same time. It's real easy, they're pretty affordable, and I think they look pretty great. It would mean a whole lot to me and Gary if you would choose to support the Power Sweep and Blue 58 that way. Blue 58, Hood we are in the midst of the slowest part of the offseason. There's no NFL draft to look forward to. OTAs are done. Minicamp is done. There's really nothing to talk about until uh, the players actually report for training camp. Sometimes when you're producing things about a sports team, you really have to stretch to come up with some football-related content. I figured let's, for at least this week, not try to stretch to come up with any contact or content. Let's not talk about this year's Packers team at all. I was thinking about this, um, particularly as I put together that Don Hudson piece, because I had to look up a quote about Hudson in that book, uh, and I thought, let's just talk about books. I've got a pretty good stack of football-related books in my personal library, and I figured I would share some of them with you, because I think they would help everybody in the audience, if they choose to read them, become better and smarter football fans. And that's really one of the main goals we're trying to accomplish with the power sweep and blue 58. There's a lot of good Packers books out there. And some of these books that we're going to talk about aren't exactly, uh, Packers related, but they're football related and they'll help you broaden your understanding of the game as a whole. They may not tie directly to the Packers, but just getting some of that more functional knowledge about how the game works, particularly behind the scenes and in some historical aspects, um, it'll help you to put some of the things that you see today and even over the past 20 to 30 years in a little bit better context. I think it's important to read broadly as well as deeply. So as much as you read about the Packers, you should also read some other related things about the NFL and just football in general uh, along with that. I'm going to stay away from the more well-known Packers books. I mean, I've got a copy of When Pride Still Mattered, Instant Replay and Distant Replay, you should check out those books for sure, but I think those kind of go without saying at this point. Everybody knows about those books. Some of these that we're going to talk about may not be as well known, but I think they're very valuable and worth checking out. So let's just dive right in. Uh, I think I can wholeheartedly recommend each of these books that we're about to talk about. First one on my list is a title called A Few Seconds of Panic. This one is not Packers-related at all, but it was written by a man named Stefan Fatsis. He joined the Denver Broncos for a training camp uh, and tried to, to quote-unquote, make the team as a kicker. He wasn't a real part of the team, and he was never going to actually uh, make the roster as a kicker or as anything else for that matter, but he kind of wanted to get the experience of, first, what it was like to be an NFL kicker, and second, what it was like to go through an NFL training camp. So he joined the Denver Broncos early in what would become the Jay Cutler era. It was the training camp that I believe was Cutler's rookie year uh, with the Denver Broncos. And it's really fascinating to see all the the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on um, in an NFL locker room. First of all, you see a lot of the guys who just happen to be good at football. It's a surprise, I think, to, to a lot of fans that a lot of people who play football professionally, and I'm sure other sports too, may not even particularly enjoy the game that they play. It's just like any other job to them. They just happen to have a particularly useful set of skills. The player in the Denver Broncos Broncos locker room who met that description uh, was a linebacker by the name of Al Wilson. And some fans may remember the name Al Wilson. He was a multiple-time Pro Bowler with the, the Denver Broncos. Very, very good player. Did not like football at all. He just happened to be really good at it. He wanted to play football for as long as he could while staying reasonably healthy and then get out uh, and take his money and then go do something else. He didn't want to be a football player forever. He just wanted to to get as much out of it as he could and and stay as healthy as he could and then get out and never look back. He didn't care about the game itself uh, beyond the level of wanting to do a good job at his job, but he just wanted to do it and get out. The second story is kind of the exact flip of that. Uh, the author ends up talking to several of the players on the practice squad since they're the, the closest players to his level. Now, his level is terrible. He's He's not good at even his pretend job of being a kicker. But these players on the practice squad are the lowest of the low. They don't even get to stay in the normal locker room with everybody else who's on the team. And he talks with one guy, I believe he was a backup quarterback, who had made the equivalent of something like $20,000 total over three years playing professional football. He had a wife, he had a young kid, and he was just making essentially minimum wage, even though he was playing professional football, just because all the farther he'd gotten with teams is hanging around in training camp. And then them then getting cut right at the end of training camp and them saying, you know, just stay healthy, we'll call you. He never heard from them. He viewed this as kind of his last shot to make it in the NFL. He ultimately did not, but it was interesting to kind of see that mindset. Whole book, very much worth a read. You'll learn a lot about what's going on behind the scene in NFL locker rooms pick it up. It's called A Few Seconds of Panic. You can probably find it on Amazon pretty cheap. In fact, in the show notes, I will link to all these books and where you can read them or buy them. The second book I wanted to talk about is one called simply The Ice Bowl. It's by a man named Mike Shropshire. It follows the entire 1967 season of the Green Bay Packers and the Dallas Cowboys. Now, the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers had some deep, deep connections, and you'll see a little bit more about those deep connections um, in the next book that we talk about. But this one kind of explores the relationship between the two teams and how they progressed through their 1967 season. One particular scene from the book jumps out to me uh, from actually the morning of the Ice Bowl. So this is late in the book because this was the second-to-last game of the season, uh, the equivalent now of what would be the NFC Championship game. This was for the NFL Championship and for the right to go on uh, to the Super Bowl. So we pick it up the morning of the Super Bowl. Tex Schramm wakes up uh, in Green Bay the morning of the game and finds out that it is dreadfully cold outside. When the news reached Tex Schramm, he said that Cracker Jack Minds of the Dallas Cowboys executive force, the smartest young franchise in the history of pro sports, had lapsed into panic mode. At least that's what happened to Tex Schramm. Quote, I knew two things. First, that I was worried about how or if... The team might make it to the stadium back over in Green Bay in time to make the kickoff. I didn't know what the highway conditions might be, so I had somebody get on the phone and try to get us a police escort. And with the traffic and all, I was thinking our buses might need an alternate route, end quote. That priority handled, Schramm then found himself digging through the Yellow Pages, searching under sporting goods stores. Surely, he figured, there would be plenty of retail outlets in Appleton open on New Year's Eve Sunday and selling wholesale supplies of golf gloves. So what if the temperature was approaching what might be a record low for the planet Neptune? Back in Texas, everybody played golf on Sunday. Quote, we knew we might not be equipped to play a game in weather like that, Shram concedes now. The Cowboys had never played in anything like that. We didn't have any idea what to expect. We were completely unprepared. We found a hardware store that would open up and sell us some gloves, but they sure as hell weren't golf clubs. But what the hell, I remember thinking then. At least Vince had installed the underground heating system, so I knew that the field, at least, would be all right. End quote. Well, as it turns out, the field was not all right for the ice bowl. The book goes on to explain exactly what happened to that famous on field or under the field grid that Vince Lombardi had installed in hopes of keeping the grass and the turf warm in cold weather. That obviously didn't happen, and the Packers and Cowboys went on to play one of the most iconic games in NFL history. The entire book is chock full of nuggets like that. It's frequently very funny, very poignant in some moments. I would check it out. That's The Ice Bowl by Mike Shropshire. The next book, Lombardi and Landry by Ernie Palladino. Uh, This one's great because it explores kind of the history of Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry, starting with their days as coaches together, with the New York Giants, how they came up in the ranks, how they got their opportunities to be head coaches in the league, uh, the difficulties both of them had in both getting and keeping their head coaching jobs. It wasn't always smooth sailing, though we would remember both of these guys as iconic coaches that you could hardly ever second guess. It was a long, hard road for both of them to get where they were, and it took a lot of interesting relationships for them to get there. One of the more interesting ones was Paul Brown, the the guy who would uh, get the Cincinnati Bengals started, had a lot of uh, things to do with the the Cleveland Browns, the team that bears his name. One of the most influential people in NFL history was a close personal friend of Vince Lombardi, and that actually played a part in Lombardi getting a shot at a head coaching job before Tom Landry. We'll read from early in the book to kind of... um, Explore that relationship a little bit. After Lombardi took the Green Bay job in 1959, they, he and Paul Brown, often visited each other, ate dinner together, swapped stories and player information. There were many late night phone calls between the two. It helped that they were not in the same division or eventually in the same league as Brown went off to the AFL's upstart Bengals in 1968 after a five-year absence following his firing from the Browns after the 1962 season. Quote, Lombardi and my father both had a sense of humor, which people don't attribute to them, Mike Brown said. They think of them in other terms. They enjoyed telling stories like guys do, stories about football, stories about life. They were comfortable with that kind of exchange, end quote. The two went beyond conversation, creating a sort of pipeline for cast-off talent between Cleveland and Green Bay, one that actually, by the way, benefited both sides quite a bit. Look into that sometime. And when it came to having Lombardi's back in the face of unwanted publicity, Brown became his closest ally. One story has it that longtime New York Post reporter Leonard Schechter once wrote a profile of Lombardi for Esquire magazine that was so harsh, it compared his treatment of players to a general's ruthless use of troops in battle that it nearly drove the Packers' leader out of coaching. When Schechter showed up at Cleveland's training camp to do a story on Brown, the coach recognized him during a media conference. Are you the one that wrote that story on my friend Vince Lombardi, Brown thundered. Yes, said Schechter. Get out. Brown never became that close with Landry, however. The stories go on. They are very interesting and very telling, and I think you'll learn a lot about both coaches as you go through this book. I would very much recommend this one as well. Check it out. It's called Lombardi and Landry by Ernie Palladino. Moving on to more behind the scenes stuff. The next one I'm going to uh, recommend is more of a, a guy who, who was a backup for much of his time in Green Bay, but ended up having quite a bit of success with the Indianapolis Colts as well. His name was Bill Curry. He was a center for the Packers uh, for a couple of years, relatively early in the Lombardi era in Green Bay. It's called Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle. Lessons from a football life, and there's quite a bit of uh, great information in here. Uh, some of it is a little bit wacky, I will say, and some of it is uh, of questionable value because even Curry admits that he kind of has an axe to grind uh, with some of the players in this, that he mentions in this book. But he tells stories about uh, meeting Bill Badgett, Bobby Dodd, Vince Lombardi, Bart Starr, Willie Davis, Ray Nitschke, Don Shula, Johnny Unitas, Bubba Smith, and George Plimpton. And uh, he he concludes actually with a pretty touching story about how his dad, his own dad, influenced his playing career. But I'll read a little bit from his chapter about his relationship with Bart Starr. My most vivid memory from the three years I coached for Bart in Green Bay had nothing to do with football, and he had everything to do with Bart Starr. Curry actually rejoined the Packers as a member of of Bart Starr's coaching staff during Starr's uh, somewhat ill-fated run as the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. At a difficult moment for our team, and there were many, Zeke Bratkowski and I were sitting in the Star living room working with Bart on problems with our offerings. When Sherry answered a knock at the front door, Bart called to her to ask who was there. She called back that she didn't recognize the gentleman. When she opened the door, we could hear a halting voice asking a question. Mrs. Starr, the voice said, I am embarrassed to be doing this, but my dad is in serious trouble. He loves your husband so much. Could you get Coach Starr to sign this piece of paper? And As Zeke and I rolled our eyes, Bart excused himself, got up and walked to the door and invited the intrusive fan into the house. The guy was horrified and protested, saying that all he wanted was an autograph for his ailing father. Bart stepped outside to talk with him on the porch, and Zeke and I, by now hovering around the door, heard our boss ask where the gentleman's father was located. This elicited another round of protests, with the young man begging that Bart simply sign the paper and let him be gone. Bart asked again, this time sharply, sharply, "'Where is your dad?' The reluctant intruder said, Coach, he's sitting in the car in front of your house. Hearing that, Bart said, Go get him. Presently, a frail old man entered the front door as if stepping into a cathedral. Bart and Cherry greeted him as if he were a dear friend, and then Bart took him by the arm and gently escorted him into the den, which contained all sorts of Packers memorabilia with special meaning to Bart. Tears began to stream down the old gentleman's face. After a time when the Super Bowl MVP trophies, the five championship rings, the Civic Awards, and the team pictures had been reviewed, the old man pulled himself together. He held out his hand to Sherry, then to Bart, then said in a clear voice, Mr. Starr, I can die in peace now. My life is complete. I am deeply grateful to you, sir. And then he and his son made their exit. When the door closed behind them, Bart turned to me and Zeke and said, now where were we? Now that story is obviously a little bit cheesy. There's a probably some rose-colored glasses remembering it there. And it probably is better with the telling than it was at the time. But can you imagine something like that happening today? Somebody going up to, say, Tom Brady's house, the the multiple-time NFL championship league MVP, superstar quarterback, knocking on his house, interrupting him when he's in the middle of doing something with his coworkers, and saying, hey, can I, I just have a moment to your time? That never happens in 2017. It was a different world, obviously, back then. But it's cool to see some of those things about Bart Starr, and you learn a lot of nuggets like that about former Packers players and about how they moved around the NFL after they were done with their playing days. I would check that one out as well. Ten Men in the Huddle, or the Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle, by Bill Curry, a former Packers player himself. This one not Packers specific at all, but helps you learn a lot about the, the the NFL and how it works. And we'll conclude with this one. This one I just finished reading. It's called. Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, the Ultimate Football Playbook, How the Great Coaches Built Today's Game, by Sports Illustrated uh, writer Tim Layden. He talks about basically how NFL offenses develop and change over the entire history of the game. and even looks a little bit towards the future as well. It's really informative uh, about NFL strategy and how really all strategies and offensive systems are related. Uh, He writes actually pretty extensively about The power sweep, Vince Lombardi's power sweep, he calls it. Uh, I'll read page here uh, from page 109 from chapter nine about the power sweep itself, which was a descendant, as Leighton reveals, of the single wing offense, which you would read about if you read this book. Quote, the single wing revolutionized football with intricate backfield faking and ball handling, but also featured punishing offensive line play that included athletic pulling and trapping, as well as fierce double teams at the point of attack. Single-wing backs were often called upon to read blocks and cut back accordingly. Lombardi was enamored of all these elements, even as a college opponent. Quote, I was impressed playing against the single-wing sweep the way those Pittsburgh teams of Jock Sutherland ran it, Lombardi wrote, together with W.C. Hines in his book Run to Daylight. Quote continues, and I was impressed again in those early days of attending coaching clinics when the single-wing was discussed. Today our sweep has a lot of those Sutherland qualities, the same guard-pulling techniques, and the same ball carrier cutback feature, and there's nothing spectacular about it. It's just a yard gainer, end quote. Leighton goes on to discuss in depth what exactly the power sweep was and why it works so well. You should really check this book out. It's going to enhance your understanding of the game as a whole. I really recommend reading, like I said earlier, broadly as well as deeply about things that you care about, football and otherwise, try to get a lot of perspectives. It will only help your understanding of the things that you're trying to read about. And while I got you here, we spent some time earlier in the show talking about Don Hudson, his great statistical prowess, and the great things he did on the football field. But there were two receivers in Packers history that managed to do something that Don Hudson couldn't match. Both of them actually did it twice as well. Both Billy Houghton and James Lofton achieved the very rare feat of averaging more than 20 yards per reception on more than 50 receptions in a single season. Houghton did it in 1952 and in 1956, and Lofton did it in 1983 and 1984. No other player has come close to matching those numbers in Packers history since. In fact, since the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium, in fact, Only five players in the NFL have done it at all. Average 20 yards per reception for an entire season. Lofton did it five times. That's about a podcast for this week. Be sure to check us out on thepowersweep.com, on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, via email at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. would encourage you to reach out in any of those three ways And get in touch with us. Maybe send along some book suggestions. Is there a great book about the NFL or about football or about anything that you've read that you think we would enjoy? Or maybe some of our other listeners would enjoy? Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make the power sweep and Blue 58 better. And it helps make all of us smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. For Gary Zillowy, I am John Meerdink. We will see you back here next week on Blue 58.